I mean, have you ever made mistakes? 100%. <laughs> lots and lots and lots of mistakes. But that's how you learn, isn't it? That's the sweet spot about how you learn because those things, you remember your mistakes far more than your successes. You know, the things you do well, at you, you're far more likely to remember those times you've embarrassed yourself in front of a client. You know, you've said something after a meeting and yeah, those things. I think, you know, the biggest learning points I have are, are definitely those you know, you've made a mistake or you failed. But the EPC, for example, I failed the first time around. And that was the best. Yeah, it was the best thing that could have happened to me, to be honest. So after after uni, I got a first in my degree. I thought I was, you know, an expression in Scotland, I thought I was Archie. My head was, you know, massive. Oh, yeah, exactly what I'm doing. When I came around doing the EPC, I failed. And looking back, it was it was one of the best things that could have happened, to be honest. Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast the podcast for surveyors who just love what they do. I'm Marion Ellis, and in today's episode, I chat with Craig Ross, a chartered surveyor who many of you may know from his time working for the RICS in London as an associate director for the built environment. Craig's now relocated to Saudi Arabia and is the senior manager for safety and security at the Diria Gate Development Authority in Riyadh. In this podcast, we chat about the career shifts Craig has had over the years. His focus for ensuring the public interest is protected through a safe and secure built environment and how his past experiences have shaped that view. So welcome to the podcast, Craig. Thank you very much. Now, when I get my guests, you're a guest, when I get my guests to, to book in, I asked you for a few questions so you can have a bit of an idea of some of the things you, you know, we might might talk about or we'll see where the conversation goes. And it's been a little while since we we spoke and uh, met up. And it's taken ages to get this in the diary <laughs> as well. And I record them in, in advance. So as we're recording this, it's December, just started December here in the UK. And this will probably go out early in the uh, the new year. So um, who knows what political changes there might be in the UK by then or whether England have won the World Cup, who knows. But a lot has happened since we met um, when you were working at the RICS and you're now in a different part of the world doing something a bit different. So I'm really interested to find out what you've been up to. But for for, for listeners, because I'm useless at doing intros, do you want to just uh, introduce yourself to those who are listening and explain a bit about your where you started out and various bits and pieces and we'll take it from there. Yeah, sure, sure. Um so I'm originally a chartered building surveyor. That was my sort of professional background, if you like. I started working in Perthshire in Scotland, and I was I was very lucky in that I got a, an apprenticeship at a chartered surveyor's firm when I was quite young. I was just seventeen odd. My girlfriend at the time had a had a beautiful little surprise in that my girlfriend fell pregnant, and so I've got a lovely daughter who's uh, twenty five now, given my given my age. <laughs> so that that really meant that full time university was out for me, and I was. Uh, you know, kind of thank the lucky stars that I found the surveyors firm that they took me on as an apprentice. And that was because I'd done work experience, believe it or not, when I was like 16. Got on really well with the firm, really loved the work, didn't have a clue what I wanted to do before that. So really kind of fell into surveying and it was, you know, such a fortuitous thing, but you know, absolutely, absolutely loved it. Worked worked in Perth for a long time. I was with the firm for about 15 years, 16 years. So, you know, really kind of cut my teeth there and, and progressed through the... I did a part-time degree, which was great. So I did a part-time course in architectural technology first, because it tends to be project work the firm did, and then did my building surveying degree part-time. So there for a long time, and it was about that time I had a kind of 
in terms of midlife crisis, I wanted to run away and join the army, so I did. Took a bit of time out from surveying, and that's why I got into the sort of security aspect, if you like. You know, I had tours in Afghanistan, loved that. Um, you, li- you literally ran away to the army? Yeah, literally ran away to the army, wow. yeah. So it was, that was a bit of a, of a change, but that was um, one of the, the main reasons that I started to get into the sort of security side of the built environment, if you like, and where you know things are sort of blended after that. Um, so where are we? So army then on to Dubai. So you know Dubai, this thing, this is about 2013, the crash had happened. You know, it was all over the, the news. Dubai getting built and then this huge crash and you know, people kind of a mass exodus from the country, people leaving. And by that time, things were starting to really pick up again. And I'd had a stopover in Dubai and I thought, you know, I, I, I like this. Got speaking to people there. I was offered a job as a head of um, consultancy team, which I took on and very quickly found myself in Dubai working in building surveying related projects in, in the Middle East. And that was from, so I've been in the Middle East really on and off since then, apart from when I met you when I was working at RICS, we came back to the, uh, London and worked, worked for a little while for RICS as Associate Director of Built Environment, working with a guy called Gary Strong in the standards team, and then made the decision to, to go back to Dubai. So I've kind of jumped back and forward a little bit um, between the UK and the Middle East. And then we more recently went to Saudi. So joined the um, Dria Gate Development Authority team in, in Saudi Arabia in September this year. So that's where I'm joining you from today, old sunny Riyadh. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's a very hysterical. <laughs> oh, there's so many things I want to unpick there. Uh, but firstly, I'm just jealous that you're somewhere uh, quite warm, although you seem to be wearing a jumper, which makes me feel <laughs> a, a bit it, more. <laughs> it's, it's because the, the air conditioning in the office, they love to keep it super cold. It is Freezing, so outside it's nice and hot. Inside, and we're jumper, which is making you feel like making you feel like you're at home, Craig. That's yeah, what it is. That, that, <laughs> that welcome. That's really interesting. It, can I ask when you in your, your almost like your first career when you were doing the um, the building surveying at the first firm was that residential or was that commercial or what kind of? It, it was it was mixed. Use. I mean, to be honest, the, the focus was probably more in the project side of historic buildings. So the guy owned the office, Henry, had a, an awesome client base, some very wealthy people and some very big projects, residential projects mostly in Scotland and all over the UK, typically listed buildings. So yeah, it was really more of that kind of work. So a lot of survey work in, in terms of measured surveys, a lot of architectural designs, but there was architects in the office working with us as well, and condition surveys. And the condition surveys were usually done as part of that refurbishment package or extension package, whatever it was. So that's where all like the pro- understanding how projects work really sort of came into its uh, into its own. Uh, what I find really inspiring, actually, is that you've had actually quite a lengthy career. You know, was it 15, 17 years? You said, and then you moved to do something else. And I was chatting to another podcast that we've got uh, coming up with a chap called Bill Jones, who was on or is or was on um, governing council, but actually now works out in Singapore. But he used to work for, I think it was like Warrington County Council or something. I was looking looking through on his on his LinkedIn and thinking, God, that sounds like a, I didn't say this in the podcast, but it sounds like a really boring job working for the council for, for 20 years. And then he just went up and traveled the world. And and for me as a, you know, I feel like I'm in my my second swing, if you like, of a, of a career. 
thinking, wow, maybe I, maybe I will get to travel the world one day because I was promised it on governing council. But, you know, with the virus, none of it. None of it oh, the, the wrong thing to be on the government. Wrong time and uh, yeah. or right time, given what we had to sort out. But it was just like, ah, oh, that world travel. That must have been quite a big move to, to go and do that. Had you ever travelled much? I mean, all right, for your work, you might not have, but had you been a, you know, a globe trotter in, in other sense? Yeah, to some, to some extent, but not not really to that part of the world. It was, you know, travelling for holidays more than anything else. It wasn't like travelling to there for, but certainly not that far afield for work, you know, some things abroad, but not, not certainly not that far afield. So yeah, it was a bit of a leap of faith, to be honest. There was a lot of conversations going back and forth with the employers, and two, and two of whom were, were British and they talked through their own experiences. They had a very good HR team that talked through the process of coming out, what what to expect, you know, how they assist with getting accommodation for the first little time. Because it is a, it is a big commitment when you know when you think about up, up and sticks and moving house is difficult enough when you when you're moving country, but to decide what you do with your stuff. And were you doing know. that uh, sort of by yourself, or did you have family that was moving with? By myself. Yeah, by myself. Yeah, so which made it a lot easier to be honest. I mean, this time round, when I do have a family, it's 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 a lot more difficult. It's a lot a lot more complexity to try and factor into the equation. But that was you know relatively easy. I think it's just it's a big commitment, but um, yeah, definitely definitely worthwhile. Mm. And I've uh, actually just remembered on we did a, an earlier podcast with two ladies, Joanna and uh, Clementine, who actually work out in Dubai, and it, you know for me it just seems like such an alien concept <laughs> to, to move out of my, my little Victorian terrace and to live somewhere else. But I'm going to sort of open my eyes a lot more. Maybe we will, we will travel, but it is a big move. And I guess no matter where, whether you're moving country or just moving job, you know, you said it's a leap of faith, you know, you've got that, that certainty, that comfort zone, you know, where you are. And surveyors are surveyors, we're not very, you know, risk averse or rather we are we don't like to take, you know, big leaps of faith, faith like that. But I guess the opportunities come along. What sounds like made a difference, though, is sort of that sort of helping you settle in and get organised, you know, where to live and, and those things must have made quite a difference. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're right. You know, we take calculated risks, don't we? And um, yes, that, that was probably one of the craziest decisions. And certainly moving over on the plane, I kind of came to thinking, oh my God, like this is, this is me moving to a different country for, for a long period of time. But yeah, most, I mean, most most firms, certainly the the more established uh, surveyors firms, do have that, that kind of package where, where they understand that people, especially expats moving from abroad, need that kind of support. And generally speaking, you will have some kind of relocation package and they'll assist you with things about to stay temporarily and, you know, get that assist you with the, the process of getting your visa and getting your residence and, and all that stuff. Mm. So what kind of, and you were obviously chartered then, so did, did your yeah. charter status then help you get the the role, I suppose? It did, yeah. For, for the role, definitely. I mean, they were after a chartered building surveyor with experience leading a team, and that was the kind of crux of the conversation, well, the start of the conversation, if you like. Definitely a, a, an essential part for, I mean, all the heads of department, it was a multi-discipline surveying firm. So we had residential valuations, commercial valuations, with planting machinery, project development consultancy team, all headed up by chartered surveyors, which was, which was great. Mm. I just want to touch on, you said you sort of studied part-time for your your degree and, and, and qualifications. How did you find that or, or any sort of tips for, for listeners? Because I know, I mean, I, uh, you know, took a few years out before I then got my, my degree. It took forever to get chartered, getting the right work experience and things. And I know there's a lot of students of uh, learners, trainees, wherever they, they want to call themselves, 
And when people are studying part-time and working, it's as hard as hell, but you're building up the most amazing resilience and adaptability. And when I see people who've done that, not that it's easy just to go through school and then, you know, get qualified, but it's character building in, in many ways, but it's really hard. How did you find it? Yeah, in terms of time, it was tough, I must admit, because you're, you know, you're working full-time four days a week and you're, you're doing a, it's not like a full-time degree that's getting squeezed into one day. It takes a bit longer. I think overall, the actual degree part took me six years instead of, you know, I don't know what degree is. It's like three or four, isn't it, for your normal bachelor's degree. So there's a wee bit of extra time to fit it in. There was a lot of study at night, obviously, but I think the benefit of doing a part-time degree is you're applying what you're learning at university in real time at your job. And certainly I found all the, there was, there was a few of us um, studying part-time and they all did really quite well when it came to exam time. I think number one, we tended to be a wee bit older as well. You know, the students are, you know, straight from, from school and going through that party kind of time, whereas the more seasoned veterans <laughs> were, uh, were kind of, we missed out on that, but it, it, you certainly focus a lot more time on your studies and because your boss is paying for your studies, your your view certainly apply yourself a bit more. I find that. And I see that actually a lot on the residential side. We have a lot of people, you know, come into residential surveying as a second career almost. But I, and I I think again that's great because you you bring that life experience with you. And when you're dealing with particularly on the residential side, you know, you walk into people's homes, you walk into their lives, and you don't know what you're going to see or what you're going to have to deal with. And sometimes we feel like social workers or <laughs> or whatever. But you've got to be able to emotionally process that, you know, even if it's not bad stuff, you know, and I think that maturity really, really helps. Can I ask you about working at RICS or rather mm. what made you want to do that? You know, so, so you, so sorry, you, you worked, you then had to time out and you went to, you know, in the arm, the army you were in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then how, so how did the working with RICS come about? So that, the two reasons really, at, at that point I'd, I'd done five years with my firm in um, in Dubai and I felt it was time for a change. So after five, they have a, they don't have, typically have a pension scheme there, it's they're called end of service gratuity. It's, a, it's a, a legal requirement for your company to pay you X amount when you leave. That jumps up after five years. So a lot of people will do five years before they consider moving on. So the five years was coming up. It was time to relocate. My my wife at times was pregnant. We were expecting a little a little boy, and I saw that we were you know talking about going back to the UK. We saw the, the position being advertised at RICS, and you know the stars aligned again. And that that was really it. I, I went. I flew over to uh, London to meet Gary and. Ken, who was the, the head of the department at that time, to discuss the role. They, you know, we talked through my experience, et cetera, et cetera. And that was it. Signed up and, and it was great. I thoroughly enjoyed my time at RICS. Mm. So what year was that? Two, at the end of 2018. 2018. And you, were you involved in the Grenfell or... Uh, yeah, any- yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, quite heavily. Um, so Gary, his, after Grenfell, there was a huge focus at RICS on the fire safety front and Gary's role really sort of changed to fire safety lead and there was a lot of you know core building surveying things that were that were getting left as a result so hence the reason for hiring you know me as the associate director for built environment but I found more and more I was getting involved with Gary on the the the, the post Grenfell response was, I think it probably where there's a lot of working groups on competence on new regulations on the building safety bill um, fire safety act etc etc 
So really to split our resources over those things, like, you know, really, really interesting time, very worthwhile work, obviously. Mm. Um, a lot of collaboration with, with other professional bodies and government and, you know, everybody else had a, a stake in the new fire safety regulations. So really interesting time. And and I guess, I mean, you know, where we're still talking about Grenfell as we, as we record this, it's now coming to the end of the inquiry, you know, so there'll be, be more that, that comes out from that. What I always find frustrating is that sometimes we can be very reactive. You know, something happens and then we go back and look at regulation standards. It's not just our ITS, it's, you know, across everything. You know, then we go back and have a look and check and, and see. And you, you, if you do, or I do wonder, why can't we just flip it around and think when we're creating these building regulations and putting these things together that we can't join the dots what is it why is it so hard to join those dots before you know beforehand or at least create that environment because we see it you know um at the moment here in the UK we're talking a lot about spray foam insulation and how whether it's good or not and all of those things and it's quite um uh, quite tense I think it's fair to say but it's all, you know, reactive. We've got a problem now. We've got to sort out, you know, the rules, the regulations, the policy, you know, not just for surveyors, but for installers and, and, and others. And the public are at a disadvantage because even if they bring in new regulations and standards and ways of doing things, we've still got people who have problems in their homes or, or whatever. That's just my beef for saying I'm frustrated. But do you, do you, do you see that? I mean, how do you say to that? Yeah, I think you're you're right, Marion. There, there is a degree of reactive re- reactivity, isn't there? There's something something's got to happen for there to be a, a fairly big shift. I think. I mean, there's a few reasons for that, isn't there? I think sometimes it's, it's money. You know, sometimes it's, it's it's very financially driven, and unless there's a real impetus for people to change their working practices or do something differently or create new regulations that make a significant change, there really has to be some kind of government push drive behind it or a, a health and safety thing like Grenfell that's really a combination of both but yeah you're right I mean the, the competence thing especially is something that, that can there, there's lessons to be learned and not just in in you know fire safety from Grenfell or the spray foam insulation from you know products that are causing problems and I think surveyors can see it they're often the first ones to notice there's an issue and you're doing multiple inspections or surveys or whatever it is and you see recurring problems that's where you start to to recognise them and say I mean the, the spray foam that was something that was brought up a few times when I was uh, working at RICS and that's um, a project that Sam Piplica, who's you know, taken the role with, with with Gary after I left, is um, is really kind of pushing forward with that. It's very difficult, but very difficult, you know, but you've got installers who are fighting tooth and nail to keep those kind of products in the market, whether, you know, that's ethical or not. It's, you know, let, I'll let you decide that. But, um, yeah, I, and, and I guess, you know, you've got a piece of technology you know, whether it's spray phone or computers or whatever that has the potential to do to do good. But if you don't join the dots of how is this going to be used, what's the current housing stock like in the UK, pull all of those bits together, then you can just see where the gaps happen or the loopholes where, you know, the cowboys can come in and, and do whatever they yeah. do. You know, it just creates opportunities for things to um, to go wrong. What other kind of things did you work on while you were at RICS? Um, there's a few, there's a few guidance notes, uh, technical due diligence stuff, and that was a big part of the role was working with members, 
it was it was a strange time when I was there. So remember, they used to have the professional group boards, and there was a drive that kicked off before I started called Professional Groups 2020 when RICS decided to do the special group. Yeah, yeah it, and it wasn't a very popular choice, to be honest. So there, there was a bit of firefighting to do with that. And a, a lot of the, the meetings that I first had was a lot of chest poking going on. You're like, RICS, what did they do for me? Those kind of conversations. But a lot of it, a lot of those were very positive discussions in that we as a group have, identified this particular problem what can we do about it and and that was a a very rewarding part of the job working with members who were um you know at the sharp end at the cool face what we're going to call it experts in their particular field developing something worthwhile that made our profession better and that was that was very rewarding so guidance notes were typically the the way that those things are communicated and that, that was for a range of topics with ppm technical due diligence I think it's, um, as we're talking now, we're sort of post-Levitt and Bichard and there'll be a new leadership hopefully in 2023 at, um, at RICS, you know, and it's definitely hopefully moving in the, the right direction. But you're absolutely right. If we don't, one of the key things I think is however RICS is managed and run as a as an, an organisation, a member, membership organisation, if we don't have the people doing the job, the technical experts in whatever shape and form having a place where they can have a voice and come together then how on earth you know are we we going to get the right rules regulations standards and see that as a proactive supportive thing going forward rather than reactive you know you've been told off you've got to do it this way I think most most members of any you know professional organization I don't think this is exclusive to sorry to RICS and a lot of surveyors are members of other organizations it's being able to share what we're seeing those really early trends you know when you know um it was ages ago you were at RICS and they were talking about spray foam we've been talking about spray foam in the surveyor hub for forever and yet now it's only come to a point because it's it's come to to a head so it's been able to nip those things in the bud or at least provide some thinking and thought leadership but you know sometimes we did um I did a podcast with um uh, Professor John Edwards, when we're talking about retrofits and, and things, you know, and he was saying quite rightly that some of the technology, the methods, the things that we're doing, we don't know actually if they're going to work <laughs> long term. We think they do. And so you've got to have those checks and balances. And that's something that often worries me is do we have the right rules and how do we stress test them, I guess, you know, um, and, and keep the conversation going so that it's never a static you know, rule. I know that makes it a lot easier sometimes and gives people certainty and lenders certainly certainty, but it's, we've got to keep the, it's, it's a moving piece, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is very much a moving target. And that's, that's a really good point on the, the, the retrofitting aspect. I know John um, quite well, he, he sat in some of the RSS groups. He's a, an expert that we would lean on quite heavily for um, input, especially into the, the, the retrofitting thing. That's a case in point where you do have, there is a bit of test and adjust and you, you proceed with the guidance that you have, you maybe have to adjust that guidance. You maybe have to change the working practices when you start to realise defects. But that's a probably a, you know, probably one of the most significant concerns at the moment, isn't it? The amount of retrofitting that will have to go on and, and the implications of that, having professionals that know what they're doing, providing advice rather than people just jumping in and starting to spray insulation all over the place and stick um, insulation 
on one external walls. John's got some fantastic photos of really bad retrofit <laughs> insulation projects that he shared with me once per hour. On the on the one hand, on the commercial side, it seems or is it feels a bit more organised, and commercial property is a lot easier because you haven't got people in the way in terms of you know consumers and people living in their their homes, and so that always makes things a lot simpler or you know more complex when you're dealing with with the residential side of things. And again, you know we we've uh, not long had the news about the little boy who dials died of. Um, mold inhalation in the, in the UK and we can go and give advice but we've also got to look at that whole piece together and remember the 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 business and we're in something that I remember talking to Malcolm Hollis about we've always got a bit of a joke you know who you know what can you repair with um flash band and duct tape I even asked him that on the podcast I think it's one of my most embarrassing moments because apparently he's really bad at DIY I think um <laughs> a bit of a, bit of a, a pot, or he was bless him a bit of a potter a tinkerer but when you see these sort of DIY repairs, you know, and it's very easy, I think, as, as a professionals to criticise that. But ultimately, some people are just doing their best. They have no money and this stuff will stick or glue it down and it'll get them through. You know, and, I, and there's a big sort of education piece in terms of built environment, how to um, look after, you know, homes. We're not taught that stuff in school. We're not taught how to cook. So we have Jamie Oliver in his books teaching us in Dinner Ladies and everything, you know, and, and maybe there's more of that, 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 that we need to start to look at, you know? Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, yeah, especially homeowners, sometimes it's, it's the least expensive option. That's just, you know, that's just reality, isn't it? Especially now with the, the cost of living crisis and the energy prices going through the roof and whatnot, you, you, you're going to want to do something and, Generally speaking, you know, can you afford a charter surveyor to come along and give you advice? Sometimes it's, it's just not the case. And I think RICS has got a big, a popular or well-known enough voice, let's say, to, to make their view on those things. You know, they've got things like consumer guides that really need to be pushed out that I think are a great idea where people can understand what they maybe need to do and, and at least make a kind of more educated decision about what they're going to do before they go to the expense of getting a professional in and, you know, going down a particular road. Yeah, I, I I think that's, um, I mean, they're there to act in the public advantage. And if we can't give certainty on certain things for, for lots of different reasons, what we can do is help people ask the questions. And a great website for um, uh, for people listening to check out, uh, there's a lady called Kate Faulkner, who uh, is in the Surveyor Hub and she commentates, she's not a surveyor, but she's probably one of the best surveyors, <laughs> best non-surveyors we, we have. And she talks a lot about the property market, but she has a website called propertychecklists.com or .co.uk. And it's checklists for properties, you know, questions to ask, things to things to do, and people love a checklist. And I think that's the kind of thing that we as surveyors can contribute to or RICS could even start to, to get to because you don't have to give people the answer, you know, if we haven't got it. That's okay. People just want some guidance and to be able to feel empowered to go and, to go and do the next thing, don't they? Can I, uh, you talked about security and getting involved in security. Mm. And when I, when I read this, I'll be honest, Craig, I started to think about, I don't know whether you've seen it, that TV program in the UK called The Bodyguard. And there's this Scottish guy and he's involved in security in the home office and things get blown up. And I just thought, security built environment. That's Craig. And that's the vision I've now got in my head, which is quite flattering, but Tell me a bit about what 
the kind of work that you do? Because I'm really interested in, you know, the the army veteran side because there's quite a lot of, um, uh, you know, I know we've got a, a few networks in uh, in the Surveyor Hub and there's a group on LinkedIn of veterans who are looking to work uh, and move over. And I think surveying is a brilliant profession in all the different guises and, and lots of skills. But how did that sort of come together and what does built environment security look like? Good question. So this built environment security is something that's always there. And regardless of the size of project, there's, the, you know, for smaller projects, domestic size projects, there's things that's mandated by the building regulations. You know, you've got to, you know, the, the, the very obvious things, locks and doors, alarms, you know, that, that kind of stuff that you might expect to see on, on larger projects, you know, what we call iconic buildings where there's, you know, a direct terrorism threat. There's probably things that's maybe less so obvious in terms of how security is planned into a project. Certainly on master plans, well, what I'm working for years, a master plan that will be, you've got a whole lot of different disciplines who advise on the architecture and the sustainability, on waste management, you know, all, all sorts of things that get built into a project from the planning stages onwards. And security is very much one of them. In this region, it's it's been mandated by law that, that you know, there's certain things that have to happen. There's a um, higher commissions for industrial security here, for example, that set standards. There's the Ministry of the Interior that sets standards for CCTV and whatnot. No, no different in the UK. You know, there's there's um, regulations that people have to follow when it comes to critical national infrastructure, for example. So it's really security in the built environment something that you often don't see. And I find that quite interesting where, especially if you're doing surveys as a, as a building surveyor of commercial offices, those kind of things might not be apparent and it's important to understand what kind of security might have been designed into a building that you're not instantly aware of. And, and can I ask quite a naive question? What was about security? Is this threat to life, terrorists, earthquakes, burglars breaking in the back door? Is Yeah, the whole lot. The whole lot. So you know, typically, you, you the, first, the stepping stone would be a security threat and risk assessment. And that's where a security consultant, or, you know, it, it depends on who's working on the project. This might be the, the master planner. It might be an individual consultant. It might be part of the architectural practice. will do a risk assessment and typically this this will fall into two categories so the terrorism thing terrorism is you know very low likelihood you know you, you hear a lot of interesting sort of facts and figures you're more likely to be killed by a vending machine than you are a terrorist you know but the 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 impact is such that you know people and you know, it could be a lot of people could, could be killed or injured crime is the opposite it's very high likelihood you know you're far more likely to have somebody breaking into your house or breaking into your building or stealing your laptop or whatever um, but the impact is generally you know, it's, it's a, you know, it could be a financial thing. You know, somebody's lost a laptop. It's no, you know, in the big scheme of things, it's not a big deal. So that's generally the starting point. Somebody will identify the threats for a particular project that gets translated into some kind of risk assessment. And then a strategy will be developed for the building to counter those things, perhaps in combination with external stakeholders like the police or, you know, for, for more iconic and larger buildings and some kind of response unit. And that's, that's really the, the sort of thought process. And, and does that, does that, also then include the construct I guess the the design and layout, but then also the construction materials. And that's where I guess the fire safety thing starts to then come in, doesn't it? Yeah, there's I mean, there's a lot of overlaps, especially with fire safety. So the, the the kind of the ironic thing, if you like, is security is more concerned with keeping people out and fire safety is more concerned with letting letting people out. You know, there, there's a bit of a conflict. There's there's a lot of things that especially for complex projects really do need a lot of sitting around the table and chewing over the best solution. You know, it's really, it's really interesting. My um, 
husband who I sometimes talk about on the podcast who doesn't really know what I do and I talk about him and he doesn't know because he doesn't listen but he <laughs> he he works in um uh transport planning and yeah, I remember him being involved in the relocation of a football stadium and he showed me this sort of had little graphic that because they were working on how do we get like 20,000 people out of this stadium really quickly you know and it had this like computer with all these little dots and they just sort of, you know, quickly came out within like six minutes or whatever. You could get everybody out and you can get them on the tube and, and doing things. And I remember just thinking, wow. <laughs> There'd been a lot of uh, hanging around car parks and bus stops and, and things early on in his career. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. But you're right, you know, it's sort of the, you know, yes, how do you get protected? But also then how do you, how do you get out for safety? And there's, there's two sides of it. The other thing that, that comes to mind and on a few things, actually, as we've been been talking, and I see this a lot with, with with my surveying, is actually customer experience. The way we, you know, it's not just about being nice to people and having things done at the right time. It's thinking about, well, what's the purpose of the task at hand? What's the purpose of the building? Who are we here to help? And when I worked um, in, in residential surveying evaluation, I, I dealt with lots of claims and PVQs and you name it. And on the financial services side, they had this thing called treating customers fairly, TCF. And it was six principles that were brought in after the last recession of, uh, not it's not consistency of service as much as, you know, be kind and let everybody be aware of things. But it, but it was about, about consistency. And being um, working for a panel firm, even though we weren't regulated by them, our clients were, and so I'd try align ourselves to it because it would help help make our clients' lives easier that they could tick boxes for their regulator. I would look at things and say, you know, there is a risk that, there's a risk that that could go wrong, there's a risk that this could happen. And that's when you start to then mitigate, well, what can you do? Rather than thinking it's gone wrong, how do we we fix it in that in reactive way? But look at everything, you know, there is a risk that the customer doesn't get their survey within 10 days, like we've promised. So what can we do? Well, we don't we give them more than 10 days or we find a different way way of doing it. There is a risk that this could go on fire. There's a risk that. And the more that we start to bring in some of those principles, you know, there's a risk that and this is what we can do about it or at least explore it. That's when we start to get some of those ideas of how we shape and, and, and change things going forward. So actually security and me dealing with PVQs and complaints isn't that far apart. And you're going through the same process. That's absolutely right. You're you're considering the vulnerabilities and things that could go wrong, and then your the the mitigations. How you treat that risk? You know whether you you change your plans to to account for it. Whether you transfer that to somebody else and get you know I don't know a fire engineer, let's say to help with the, the fire aspect. It's it's exactly the same process. It's it's that that thought process is is absolutely crucial when it comes to complex projects where you've got multiple stakeholders involved. You've got you know, 20, 30, 40 people sometimes sitting around the table, all with a legitimate stake, sometimes with conflicting viewpoints and kind of thinking about the potential issues that might arise. It's harder than you think. And, mm. um, you know, yeah. getting getting the, the, the right process in place is absolutely crucial. But yeah, it's, anyway, it's the same process. I suppose the problem is, though, if you then start to think, well, what is the risk? You get so bogged down in, well, bloody everything can happen, everything that can go wrong, that you become so paralysed by fear that you don't do 
anything proactive, you have lots of caveats in your reports and mechanisms that stops you actually doing the job. How do you how do you get over that and move forward? Sometimes you just get, yeah. you know. You've got to be you're right. You've got to be practical. Um, benchmarking, you know, is, is, a, is a good idea. You look at comparable projects and say, okay, they, you know, they did this. It's never been an issue. You can never. It's important to know you can never cancel out risk completely. It's just mm. it's, it's impossible to do. You do have to take a practical stance, I guess, when it comes to certain things like terrorism, for example. You know, because it's super low likely. Does that mean that? Every single building should have blast-proof windows. Every single building should have standoff distance. It just doesn't work like that. You've really got to focus on the risks that are most important to your client or the project or you know whatever you're working on. I guess. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, there'll be a lot of, uh, I guess, younger or newer surveyors listening to this. Um, you know, here in the UK, everybody's a bit worried about an increase in claims because when we have a recession, things start to go wrong. Not necessarily because surveyors are making mistakes, but when there's uncertainty out there, people get a bit scared and they react in in different ways. And uh, on the lender and valuation side, you know, all the work we've done since the last recession in terms of better quality comparables, right move and the surveyors comparable tool and everything, we don't know if that's, um, that's enough. And so I think that's actually really good advice for budding and, and young surveyors out there is, you know, there is a risk to this job, but it is minimal. Mm. You know, I mean, when I've dealt with com- complaints and claims um, across the board for lots of different types of firms, you know, it's it's a percent, a couple of percent of all the work that they do. It's just sometimes it can be quite expensive when it uh, when it goes wrong, but then you've got to design your business and, you know, a budget for that, which is what a lot of the, the bigger firms do. Um, and, and and take that as a as a calculated risk going forward, but yeah, it's a it, it's hard when you're learning to and you don't want to make mistakes because you understand the the consequences. I mean, have you ever made mistakes? One hundred percent, lots and lots and lots of mistakes. But that's how you learn, isn't it? That's the sweet spot about how you learn because those things you you, you remember your mistakes far more than your successes you know the things you do well at you you're far more likely to remember those times you've embarrassed yourself in front of a client you know you've said after a meeting and yeah those things I think you know the biggest learning points I have are are definitely those you know where you've made a mistake or you failed but the EPC for example I failed the first time around and that was the best yeah that was the best thing that could have happened to me to be honest so after after uni I got a first in my degree I thought I was you know an expression in Scotland I thought I was Archie my head was, you know, massive. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what I'm doing. When I came around doing the APC, I failed. And looking back, it was it was one of the best things that could happen, to be honest. Was that because you technically didn't know or it was just sort of maturity and attitude? It was a combination of things. You know, the, I take 100% responsibility myself, but the office I was in, it was a small practice. Nobody had gone through the APC process. Well, there was building surveyors there, but they've qualified a long time ago. The, the process was different. I had... An architect was a supervisor, and that wasn't his fault. It was, you know, he, he focused on what he knew. You know, the APC is, there's a process to it, and there's, there's a structure to each APC interview and how it works and what to expect. I went in completely blind. I chose a very complex project. and was work, I was working on a, um, a grade two listed building in, um, in London or near London. English regulations I was kind of familiar with, but not enough to be really grilled on. Stupid idea. You know, the... the, the um, I've been APC chair and assessor now, and the, the reason I wanted really wanted to do that was to be 
sensitive to people going through that kind of process myself and you know, give my the, 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 the APC candidates I'm supervising the best advice and you know, choose a simple project that you know inside out don't choose something that you think is going to be impressive and you're actually just shooting yourself in the foot so. and that's the hard part I mean you know I've been on uh, APC panels and things uh, as well and I, I guess when you're coming new into the profession you've just got that enthusiasm and just want to show that you can do this and you deserve this and you want to show your best and it maybe it is a little bit showing off, you know, but but that's okay. We we totally get it. But you it's like learning to drive and pass your tests. You know, you don't have to do wheelies down the road or or whatever. And it is is learn and that's not to dumb down the APC in any way, but if you make it easy for us as assessors to mark you, it's easy as for us to you know help uh, help you ask questions, get it right. And there's nothing worse. There's two kinds of candidates that I used to hate to uh, interview. Ones that were just really, really bad. But also ones that were just really, really good. Because struggling to fight anything. Struggling to find anything. And you want to, you're meant to test their knowledge and they know it all. And you just really want to have a good chat with them. But, you know, you're not meant to, to do that. So, they're, they're, yeah, it'd be really, uh, really hard. Uh, just to, uh, you know, finish off, it's been really great to, to talk to you. I'd like to talk, ask you about the the kind of work that you're working on now. You talked about some developments and and things. Yeah, sure. So the, the project I'm working on is Diria Gate. So this is one of, I think you may have heard the, the, the term giga projects in Saudi Arabia. It's these big, big projects like the line. I don't know if you've seen the line being advertised. It's got a, I've seen it in, on uh, advertising the TV in the UK. So there's a, a, move, a move called Vision 2030 in Saudi. I think Saudi Arabia has realised that they can rely on oil um, revenue forever and they've got a diversification process underway and part of that is the public investment fund the large that fund that's driving these large projects that are aimed at attracting new business new tourism etc etc to to saudi so some of the giga projects are neom there's alula there's kadia and diria gate is one is one of them so it's essentially a, it's a the way i describe it Simple as a, it's a new city getting built on the the western edge of of Riyadh, um, focused on there's uh, the, the Aturif, which is a, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So the Najdi style of architecture, your mud mud buildings rendered, your know, very beautiful buildings. The original was the original Saudi state, so Riyadh kind of grew from Aturif in the, the, the in the Najd region. So that this project in particular is being designed and built on that very specific style of architecture. It's a very, uh, very interesting project, but it's, given this, the sheer scale of these projects, it's the, a, a huge number of staff working on, on the project, a huge number of consultants developing the, the master plans with us. Things have started on site. It's very interesting. So that's, that's where I, I sit in the master planning team. So myself and my colleagues work on the security strategy with for example, the government bodies and that, the, the security procedures and strategy gets filtered down into the master plan and then into the individual plots. So that's it in a nutshell. And in my head, I've just got, it's like creating Lego cities and building. And <laughs> uh, yeah, wow, exciting projects. Very, yeah, very. It's one of the, the biggest, I think, the one of the excavations here where they're, for an area called Diria Square is, I think it's the biggest excavation in the world at the moment. We had a site visit the other day and I was absolutely blown away. You know, more, most, we've been looking at things on 
plans for a long time and that you can kind of grasp the scale but until you're on site in these projects it's just absolutely massive and that's the thing i think here in the uk we have no idea of the scale i guess we wouldn't do a project like that i mean you know the thing i can compare it to maybe is um you know building the new towns that was you know milton Keynes, for example uh, that's, that's what sprang into my mind as well <laughs> or a macarthur glen uh outlet village <laughs> vista or whatever it is you know um we just don't have that kind of scale here do we we're sort of making good with what we've got which has a lot of challenges that's right uh, when the 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 building stock in the uk is far more mature and it? it's gone through that process already it's there's been that huge expansion when you look at the size of what london was to compare to what it is now it's, we've had that big expansion and we've brought a, an amazing existing building stock whereas certainly dubai saudi and all there's there's you know, far more new buildings that i was going to say so it's all it's all new is there any older building that's you know or is there are they looking to because even you know stuff that was built in the 70s you know is nearly 50 years old now <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and are they are they looking thinking about sustainability in terms of how do they manage that existing stock and not make the same mistakes we have in terms of yeah definitely field and definitely to, I mean, to some extent some of the buildings especially in dubai at the moment they're not that old but they're they're getting to that age now where they do need a bit of TLC. The insides are needing remodeled. There's the fire safety issue, a lot of them have cladding that's combustible. There's you know, energy efficiency. Those need to be retrofitted for, for other reasons to keep the cool in rather than to keep the cool out, if you know what I mean. But yeah, there's 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 a lot of a lot of work, especially in those regions now where the building stock is getting to that age now where it needs specific advice from charter surveyors, for example. There's a there's a, a very expanding market let's say in um, existing building stock which is very interesting and you say chartered surveyors and obviously the RISS is an international organization some people don't like that some people do personally I haven't seen the been on governing council and seen the benefit of you know in, what goes on internationally and how we make that relevant to a surveyor on a wet Tuesday in Margate I think is really really important we've always got to pay attention to that um, to that gap but what's it like you know being a chartered surveyor abroad do you really see the value of that membership and and being able to use yes yes and no i think it depends on what surveying pathway you're on so valuers for example the rics is very well known the, the land department you see the rics is they understand the rics qualification a lot of people will understand it especially expats and they understand what a chart survey is for building surveying it was slightly less so and in that when I first moved over to Dubai, second week, I thought I'd go down to the municipality, which is like the, the local council, and say, look, I'm a charter building surveyor, just interested in the development process. Can you talk me through the process of getting projects approved? And I said that, they were like, a what? Did they have a clue what was he? Are you an engineer? No, then I don't want to speak to you. So there, it, it really depends on what pathway you're on. There's not a lot of building surveyors in the region, but there's a lot of excellent QSs. Um, there's a huge quantity surveying market, especially from India, Sri Lanka fantastic guys which really shows the the kind of spread of RICS into that region there's the mm-hmm. I, can't, I can never remember the name of it there's a, 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 a educational facility for church of in, in India that yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the school of the built environment uh, I think it, yeah. it, it used to be part of RICS and I think it's now separated in in, in some way but um, ah. <laughs> can I uh, but even so you know it's um, it's now somewhere else where people can get you know, get, get qualified and it doesn't matter where in the world you are, you know, to, to get through and, and to get chartered is, you know, it does take, um, we all feel proud of that. Can I just ask then, so when you've got, if there's no 
rules as such. How do you approach a, a big plan like the master plan that you've got? What what rules do people follow? There are regulations. And there's the, for, here, for example, is the Saudi Building Code, uh, right? Okay, the Saudi, yeah. Saudi Fire Code. So there are, there are regulations as such. I mean, it's it's maybe better to think about it in terms of the planning process. So this is really this a planning process and and developers want to build in the master plan, go through our approval process, which is almost like planning permission. And then you have the municipality or here we have UMA who effectively check the building complies with the building code. So which more like building control back in the UK. So there are, there are processes here. It's just the, the roles and responsibilities are slightly different. It's very difficult to do the design work unless you're a registered engineer. Whereas, you know, in the UK, if, you know, people... You could be a homeowner and submit plans to the, the local authority. No chance of doing that here. So um, not that one might be better than the other, but which do you think is sort of easier to to navigate or better to? Well, um, probably the UK, but only because I'm much more familiar with it, mm. you know, especially the process in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all, it's all disco up there, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's awesome. But yeah, that, that's... If that's that's a, a fairly simple process, but I think that's maybe a bias on my part because I'm very familiar with it. Yeah, but you know, sometimes you just need to see what's the other side and how people do things to 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 actually know yourself and what we do, what we do better. Oh, Craig, it's been really lovely to talk to you today. Thanks ever so much for your time. It's been great to see you again, Marion. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to take a look at the show notes when you get a chance for the resources and links we mention in the podcast. The Love Surveying podcast is not sponsored, so I'd really appreciate it if you could show your support by sharing the podcast with others, leaving a review, or simply buying us a coffee. You can find all the details on the lovesurveying.com website. I'll see you next time.